Our lesson from the Hebrew Scriptures this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60. Biblical scholars think this passage was written in the 6th century B.C. during or immediately after the Babylonian captivity of the chosen people. And I needn't read this because our choir is going to present it for us. Dan Forrest wrote, Arise, Shine. Dan was educated at the University of Kansas. This piece premiered at Carnegie Hall in 2007 when Dr. Forrest was 29 years old. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Thank you, choristers and orchestra, and Lisa and Susan, for bringing us Dr. Forrest's piece, and a minute, and a minute, John Rutter's Gloria. If you are Catholic, or once were Catholic, or even if you listen to any sacred choral music at all, you know that generically, a Gloria, any Gloria, is the second obligatory piece of any sung Mass in a Roman Catholic Church during ordinary time. In a full Mass, the Gloria comes right after the Kyrie and before the Credo. And you probably also know that all the components of a sung Mass in a Roman Catholic Church are named after the first word in Latin of that song or prayer. So, for instance, Kyrie, Lord, Credo, I believe, Sanctus Holy, Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, and of course, Gloria, or Glory. Because this Gloria prayer of John Rutter was inspired by the angel's song above those shepherd's fields outside Bethlehem so long ago. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people of goodwill. Christian Church has been singing this song for almost 2,000 years in this very wording. It goes almost all the way back to Jesus' death and resurrection itself. Now, you'll notice in a moment that the Gloria Prayer is inspired by the angel song at that very first Christmas. So we Protestants are accustomed to hearing the Gloria Prayer, for instance, in Vivaldi's Glorious Glorias or in Rudder's Gloria during Advent. But ironically, in a Roman Catholic Mass, you'd never hear the Gloria sung during Advent or in Lent because those are the penitential seasons and this Gloria is much too happy or joyful to be sung during penitential seasons. So don't tell your Catholic Episcopalian friends that we're doing this during Advent. They would be horrified. Gospel lesson from the Gospel according to St. Luke. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people of goodwill. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and the music of our voices be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock 
and our Redeemer. So, I'm very grateful for the childhood and youth I spent among the pious Dutch Reformed folk of Western Michigan, but to be honest about it, church music wasn't our best thing. I was raised on a steady diet of Blood of the Lamb hymns like Rock of Ages and the Old Rugged Cross, which are fine, they really are, but a little bit Johnny One Note. I don't remember ever hearing Handel or Mozart in the church of my childhood. That can't be an entirely accurate memory, but there wasn't much of it, and certainly nothing in Latin. In church, we spoke one language, and it was American. (laughs) So, imagine my delight when, during seminary, as a field education placement, I stumbled into this huge Presbyterian church outside Philadelphia with a killer music program. Our minister of music, 30 years ago was a man named G. Stanley Powell, one of my favorite people in the world. He must be about 90 years old. You didn't have to ask G. Stanley Powell where he was from because the instant he opened his mouth, you could tell that he was from Peachtree Road in Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) Stanley was irrepressible, a 60-year-old ball of energy. Well, sort of. Most days, he would arrive at church about 6 a.m. and brag to us young associates who rolled into the office around 9 or 9.30 that he'd been up the night before studying scores until 2 o'clock a.m., and he only needed four hours of sleep. But then he would fall asleep during staff meeting and stay that way till the rest of us left the room. Our organist swears that Stanley Powell fell asleep on him during a conversation in the office one day, which happens once in a while, of course, but in this case, Stanley was talking. Stanley fell asleep in the middle of his own sentence. During divine worship, Stanley he would always sit behind the pulpit here, and he, he, the congregation really couldn't see him, but the choir and the liturgists could, so we could see him sitting there with a score open in his lap, sort of practicing his conducting of this score. Now, fortunately, the preacher couldn't see this. He was mostly irrepressible and also fearless. Stanley was like Lisa Bond. Nothing scared him, her. No music was too big or too much or too hard. And he was an early adopter of the music of John Rutter. John Rutter was born in 1945, which means that he celebrated his 70th birthday in September And he's been publishing music since 1963. His first published piece was Shepherd's Pipe Carol. You probably know this piece. He was 18 years old, a student at Clare College, Cambridge. So he's been at this a long time. But for a long time, John Rutter in the UK and the US labored in obscurity till the premiere in 1974 in Nebraska of his glorious Gloria. Everybody paid attention. And so my friend Stanley must have stumbled upon Dr. Rutter's Gloria in the late 70s and brought it to the Abington Presbyterian Church near Philadelphia in 1983. And so Stanley invited me to participate in the rehearsal on Saturday, the day before we were going to present Rutter's Gloria during divine worship on Sunday. I'd never heard the Gloria before and seldom anything like it in church. So I was sitting there, minding my own business, waiting to practice my scripture reading or whatever it was, and I think I literally jumped back when Stanley raised his baton and that opening timpani roll 
and brass fanfare burst the silence of that sacred sanctuary. It was so big and so bright and so much. And after the rehearsal, I came up to my friend Stanley and I said, Stanley, is this legal? Can you, can you do this in church? Won't the liturgical priest arrest you or something? You know, in 1983, Alan Greenspan hadn't yet come up with the phrase irrational exuberance, but in retrospect, that's what I was thinking. The exuberance of John Rutter's Gloria is irrational. But that's just the point of this Gloria, isn't it? The angel song above those shepherds' fields outside Bethlehem so long ago was anything but rational, right? Glory to God in the highest, sing those angels, and on earth peace among people of goodwill. I want you to know that that word glory appears twice in our scripture lesson this morning. Once as a noun and a second time as a verb. To put it a different way, the word glory or gloria in Latin is something God has and also something God gets, something God gets from us, even though God already has it. Glory is a noun. Glory is something God has. Glory is one of the attributes or characteristics of the Creator. The glory of the Lord, says Luke, shone round about them, and they were terrified, says the New Revised Standard Version. Or as Linus puts it in the old Peanuts Christmas show, they were sore afraid. The glory of the Lord shone around them. See, here's the thing. God is way beyond our human capacity to imagine. God is unspeakable, invisible, unreachable, unthinkable, and uncontainable. We cannot speak God. We can't think God. We can't imagine God. But sometimes God leaves evidence of God's near presence. And when we think we see evidence of God's activity, in our common world we speak of God's glory. Glory is, as it were, God's footprint in the dewy grass of a spring morning. When we see the glory of a perfect scarlet Japanese maple in November, or the burnt glory of a sunrise over Lake Michigan, or hear the glory in Alyssa's voice, or Emily's voice, or Amanda's voice, we are sure that God is near. Glory is God's loveliness, God's majesty, God's awesomeness come close to us as unmerited grace. So it's a noun. Glory is something God has, but glory is also a verb and is something God gets, something God gets from us. When we see evidence of God's near presence among us as unmerited grace, we want to praise God. We want to give glory to God. Glorify God in the highest, says St. Luke. Glorify God in the highest and on earth peace among people of goodwill. And when you hear me define glory as God's unspeakable splendor, now you know why I am talking about the irrational exuberance of that angel song above those shepherds' fields or about Dr. Rudder's requiem, or Gloria rather. Because when the angel wanted to say to those shepherds, and what Luke wants to say to us, and what Dr. Rudder's music wants to communicate, is that God's unspeakable splendor appeared to us most definitively in that Bethlehem baby. If you're not surprised by that, you're not paying attention. In what universe is that Bethlehem baby 
evidence of God's unspeakable splendor. His mother was an unwed teenager. His adopted father was a Palestinian peasant. He was born in a cattle shed, wrapped in rags and laid on hay in a feeding trough. His first worshipful congregation were rustics from the pasture, the scorned outcasts of first century Palestinian society. There is nothing rational about the exuberance of Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And yet that's what Luke's Christmas story means to say, that when you want to know what God looks like, you look in that cattle shed at Bethlehem. The humility of his entrance into this unwelcoming world, the inconspicuousness of it, the gentleness of it, that's quite to the point. It is a foreshadowing, a hint, and a guess at the beautiful life which will follow. And I think that's a message we need to hear just now, right? Darkness shall cover the earth, promised the prophet Isaiah 2,500 years ago. Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. And the world feels pretty dark just now, doesn't it? For me, the most depressing thing about Colorado Springs and San Bernardino is that in both places, religion was the source and inspiration for that malice. Robert Deere and Syed Farouk both used God as an excuse for their lethal hatreds. How could these people have gotten God so wrong? But that's not the end of the story. The Lord will be your everlasting light, says Isaiah. The glory of the Lord will shine around you, says Luke the Evangelist. I love Christmas, says John Rutter. I guess it's the child in me. Maybe I've never grown up. I have all these wonderful memories of my childhood Christmases, celebrating at home with my family, but also singing in my wonderful London school choir. This wonderful Christmas music every year. With music, your Christmas can be perfect. It's different from real-life Christmas. Real-life Christmas can never be perfect, right? We wanted a white Christmas, but it only rains all day. Uncle Sylvester and Grandfather get into this political argument and almost come to blows. The turkey is dry and overdone. You're eight years old, and your grandma gives you socks for Christmas. Just what you wanted, socks for Christmas. That's real-life Christmas. But the music of Christmas is always perfect.